stay standing. Because what I want you to do is, in a minute, I'm just going to give you some brief instructions of participation. And what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor in a minute. And uh, I'm going to have you repeat a few words after me. And then you're going to ask your neighbor what their definition of those words are. So let's just do a practice run. I don't want you to turn to your neighbor yet, but I just want to make sure you're on the whole repeat thing. So ready? I'm going to say a word, and then you repeat it after me. Okay? Run. Now don't do that. (laughs) Okay, ready? Walk. All right, good. You got it. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to ask them the definition of the first word, which is, repeat after me, friend. Okay, now the second word you're going to ask them, repeat after me, acquaintance. Okay, ready? Go. Okay, you should have a general definition by now. You can go ahead and sit down. But I'm going to give you a heads up that I'm going to come ask some of you what your definition of friend or acquaintance and what you got. Jeff, what was the definition you were given for friend and acquaintance? Okay, so a friend is someone who is more than just an acquaintance. Okay, go ahead. I'm looking for a little heavier definition here. And an acquaintance is someone that you are, you would just say hi to, or, you know, So an acquaintance is somebody that you just say hi to, something kind of general. Okay, so let me just walk over here. Kara. I saw you shaking over here. Uh, what was the definition you were given for friend and acquaintance? Uh, a friend was a buddy. Okay, so a friend was a buddy. And acquaintance is an acquaintance is somebody you wave to on the street. All right, all, both good definitions, and I'd love to hear all of yours. I just don't have time this morning to do that. But it's interesting because Webster's Dictionary says that a friend is somebody that you have more intimate knowledge of and that you like. And not only that, but the feeling is mutual. An acquaintance is somebody that you have general knowledge of and nothing beyond that. I find it pretty interesting that in today's culture, those two words, I believe, have become like muddy water. They're unclear. In fact, In today's culture, if you go on to the internet, you get things like, I Twitter my friends, I tweet my friends on Twitter, I write on my friend's wall on Facebook, I I am everybody, or I instant message everybody, or you'll find me, uh, let's see, what else do I got up there, MySpace, uh, all these different things. We do that with our friends, and the reality is, is probably more than half of those people that we tweet on Twitter and we write on their walls on Facebook and we post things on MySpace and IM. Really, the reality is, is they're more or less acquaintances to us. 
And then we take it a little further in our culture today because not only do we have people that we call our friends, but we have friends with benefits where we deem them as people that more or less give forth sexual favor when we have no commitment to one another. The, mutter, the waters have been muddied. And that's what Paul was talking about in Thessalonica. Because Paul had a pretty good understanding about the church in Thessalonians, and he was basically saying to them, listen guys, here's the deal. There's a lot of chaos out there. There's a lot of confusion about what friendship really is, and I want to narrow that down for you in a godly manner. And so he dives into 1 Thessalonians. Now, 1 Thessalonians is actually a reflection of the moral climate of the city of Thessalonica. Because Thessalonica was under a heavy pagan Greek influence, there was a lot of immorality going on and a lot of type of ritualistic things that were going on that did not really look good for the eyes of God when he looked upon it. The reality was is that not only was there a lot of immorality in Thessalonica, but there was a hunger for the spiritual things of God there too. Enter Paul. So Paul shows up and he begins to teach these Thessalonians, these followers of Jesus, how to live the Jesus lifestyle in the midst of a culture that was anti-Jesus. And on top of that, as you go through 1 Thessalonians, you begin to find that not only did Paul teach about how to live in a culture with values that are anti-Jesus, but also how to live in a culture that is looking for the return of Christ. In some way and somehow, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Paul does this amazing job of putting all that together, and he also gives us an idea for us as followers of Christ. But here is the issue. The current followers of Jesus that Paul was speaking to had given their wholehearted allegiance to the crucified Christ, Jesus. Well, see, that's a problem, especially when you have pagan rulers and you have other authorities and especially Caesar. He was not too happy about hearing that there was another king in his dominion. So that posed a threat. Now, if you go all the way back to creation... When God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit had created the earth, this thing, sin, entered the world. And it basically means that we miss the mark, that we're imperfect. None of us are perfect. I think hopefully by now we've realized that. And uh, we realize that we're not perfect, so God had to send his son Christ to pay for our imperfections. So Jesus comes in the flesh as a baby, as a newborn. Word gets out that there is a coming king. Herod is not too cool with that. He hears that somebody is going to come in, take over, establish dominion on his turf. We're not too cool with that. So Herod comes up with this plan and says, I tell you what, we can eliminate that. We'll just go ahead and kill all the little newborns off till a certain age. That way we'll cover it. And this King Jesus, who's supposedly born, going to be king, take over, won't happen. So God establishes this miraculous way of deliverance, delivers his son, takes care of it. Jesus ends up, point in case, being 33 years old, goes to the cross, and dies. Not exactly, because on the third day he rose from the grave. (laughs) So Jesus rises from the grave, but before Jesus returns to heaven, he leaves us with a very strong message. And he says this, there is coming a day that I will return. 
Now, case in point, there's a lot of other rulers here on earth right now and presidents and kings and lords, but there's this one guy that's supposed to rise up in the word of God called the Antichrist, meaning he stands for anything that is against Jesus. Well, the problem is is the Antichrist is not too happy that Christ is going to return. And so Jesus keeps telling us, here's the deal. I'm coming back and nothing's going to stop me. Well, the Antichrist thinks he's got one up on Jesus because when he returns, he's going to try and annihilate Christ, and that's not going to happen. Jesus always comes out on top. So see, all throughout the beginning, all the way to the current, there have been men and women and rulers who have opposed the kingship of Christ. So even when Jesus returns, people are going to be opposing Christ And Paul gets into this for us in 1 Thessalonians. In fact, he understood that followers of Jesus, towards the return of Christ, need friends that are worth trusting. And being led by the Holy Spirit, Paul pens down these inspired words in 1 Thessalonians, where we're going to be today. And he leaves us with a few key important elements here that we need to take hold of, which is first of all this. Friends worth trusting live the Jesus portion. They were called Talmudim. It's the word plural meaning disciples, followers of Christ. You could say that in essence modernly we are Talmudim. When a Talmud, meaning single for disciple, would follow their teacher or their rabbi, they would dedicate everything that they did to listening to the teachings of the rabbi because the rabbi taught from the scriptures. The object of being a follower of a rabbi or a teacher was that you would invest your time and your efforts and your finances and everything into a point where you could study the scriptures night and day so that you could live them out and apply them and live out the Jesus values. Well, one way that they would do that is they had this term called in the dust of the rabbi. And what it was, as you've heard Pastor Jack talk about this a little bit, is that the followers of the rabbi wanted to stay so close on the heels of their rabbi, wherever they were going, so that any word the rabbi would whisper, they would catch. And so they were so close on the heels of listening to what that rabbi was telling them, that knowledge of that scripture, that the dust from the rabbi's sandals would kick up onto their clothes. So this morning, don't worry, I'm not going to throw this on you. But imagine this, this is sand, imagine this basically being kicked up all over you. So by the end of the day, when you're done following the rabbi around, you're just covered in dust. You're just covered in grain and soot. And Lord only knows what else they stepped in and kicked. But that's what the Talmudim did. And the whole essence of the rabbi and the follower of Christ was this. The rabbi chose the disciple. So the disciple would be with the rabbi so that the disciple would become like the rabbi. And in the same manner, Jesus comes to his Talmudim. He chooses us. Says, I want you to spend time with me so that you can become like me. I want you to follow me so close on my heels that the dust of my presence covers you. That the dust of my word covers you. That the dust of my character falls upon your garments. That's what Jesus was saying. And that's what happens when we live the Jesus portion. And Paul speaks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're starting in verse 13 today. 
This is what he says. Therefore, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work. Circle that word work. In you who believe, and then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen in this way. You imitated the believers of God's churches in Judea, who because of their belief in, Jesus, in, in, belief in Christ Jesus, suffered from their own people, the Jews. Okay, so Paul is basically really pumped up and excited at this moment when he's writing this to these followers of Jesus in Thessalonica. He comes to them and he says, here's the deal, guys. I'm so pumped up, not just because you listened to us, not just because you gave ear to what we were saying. I am really ecstatic because you are actually applying these values. You're taking the word of God to heart. You're infusing it in there, and you are actually living this out. That is so awesome. Now, that word work in the Greek is the word energeo. And what that word in the Greek means, energeo, means to put forth power. And that's important because as Jesus returns, we must realize that endurance is a must. Endurance is a must. You know, sometimes I think about that word endurance. And endurance basically means to withstand or withhold under intense pressure. And a few years ago, I took on this crazy idea of deciding to build a house from the foundation up. And in the end, it's worth it. But in the midst of that, There are many times that I actually asked myself and wondered and said, do I have the mental endurance to do this? Do I have the physical endurance to do this? Am I wise in doing this? And there were days that I thought I was really a big idiot for what I was doing. But in the end, it was worth it. It was worth it. I had the endurance to go through it. And see, what's important is, is friends that are worth trusting in these hours is that when we have friends that are worth trusting around us, They don't grit their teeth, and they don't get angry in disbelief or in offense of God in those hours of persecution. But instead, because of the word of God and infused in living the Jesus portion, the inner geo, the working of the word, begins to alter their attitude and their mindset. And there's a place in scripture here where Jesus wants us to come to this place of living the Jesus portion, where we live a fasted lifestyle— And we live a life of prayer and getting into the word and allowing the word to intergale within us, to work and put forth power, to build an endurance before the return of Christ comes. Because the reality is, is that we want men and women around us who push us to be looking for the return of Jesus. The truth is, we don't want people who are on the earth that are close to us, that are wasting time, Now hear me on this. Some of you are going to get real offensive about when I say this. But we don't want people being our friends that draw us away from Christ. We want people around us that are worth trusting that push us to the return of Christ. And that's critical. Because you may say, well, pastor, you don't understand. I mean, aren't we supposed to love people for Jesus and love them into the kingdom of God? Well, yes, we are. But here's the factor. In the end of the day, you will answer to one king. You will not answer to your friend. You will answer to one king. And if we do not have the endurance of heart and the endurance of mind 
to be ready for the return of Christ, we're in trouble. Followers of Jesus are submitted to the touch of God. And when we get into the word and we get friends around us who live that Jesus portion, we begin to see that he's still at work even when we don't think he is. Look at verse 15 and 16. For some of the Jews killed the prophets, and some even killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us too. They fail to please God and work against all humanity. And as they try to keep us from preaching the good news of salvation to the Gentiles, by doing this, they continue to pile up their sins. But the anger of the Lord, of God, has caught up with them at last. So Paul tells us that friends will rise against friends. And countrymen are going to rise against countrymen. He even says in a word that fathers will turn against their sons and sons against their fathers and mothers against daughters and so forth and so forth. But what we have to understand is in the midst of chaos, Paul's reminding us in saying that justice is still in God's hands and that God is still in control. Friends worth trusting live the Jesus portion as a result of the truth working within their lives. And it enables us to stand firm in the midst of future persecutions. You see, here's the thing. You say, well, pastor, you're talking a lot about persecution and the return of Christ. And, but, you know, when the trumpet blows, we're all going to be like, you know, up and gone. And we're like, you know, beam me up, Scotty. Well, yeah, I understand that. But we also can't fall to foolishness. We can't live as followers of Christ and be like, everything's going to be a bed of roses until Jesus returns. Because we know all over the world right now, men and women are being persecuted for their faith. People are literally being asked, if you deny Christ, you will live. If you don't, then we'll kill you. I pray that there will never come a day that we will experience things like that. But we can't live like that in foolishness. We have to live as though we are ready for everything and anything when Christ returns. Friends worth trusting cultivate fervent expectations. That word fervent means passionate. And the question is, is what are you passionate about? As a follower of Christ, what motivates us and moves us? What are we fervent about? A lot of us are, you know, passionate about hunting. We're passionate about sports. We're passionate about cars. And we're passionate about sewing and crocheting. And we're passionate about, you know, going skiing or snowboarding and All those different avenues, some of us are passionate about reading, but what are we really passionate about? Paul talks about this in verse 17. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. Paul had this fervent expectation about him. He yearned, he was passionate about seeing and connecting with those previous followers of Jesus that he was with. And in the same manner, they, other translations use this word thwarted. In some versions it uses other things, but in another version it says thwarted. And that picture of that word thwarted, if you guys can throw that up, the Greek picture behind that word thwarted actually is the picture of someone that's running a race. And in the midst of that race, the other opponent cuts you off. They just move right in and take over the race. And that's the picture that Paul was saying, is that the enemy, while Paul was running this race, the enemy was hot on his heels and tried to move in and cut him off at the race before he could make it to where he needed to be. 
And that's important for us to realize because in these last days of Jesus' return, the Antichrist of this world is going to try to break up our paths or try to cut in on our stride and prevent us from making it to the goal and defeat us. And that's why you have to ask yourself, who are the friends worth trusting around me? Do I have the friends around me that are pushing me and motivating me and have fervent expectation to push me to move towards more towards the goal of Christ? Or do I have I surrounded myself with those who are trying to pull me away from that direction? Paul tells us that we want others around us who will chase in the midst of opposition. That will chase in the midst of opposition. Not only chase God, but will chase us in the midst of opposition. And what I mean by that is we want friends who will discern the plans of the enemy, but focus all of their energy on Jesus. You see, we can get really wrapped up in what's going on around us in the world. And we can come to a place where we get really down and we get really depressed. Or we can come to a place where we put our energy and focus our energy on Jesus We want friends around us who are able to discern those plans, the wickedness of the enemy, and friends that will guide us and say, no, 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 don't take that path. You need to come over here and look at Jesus. I know, I know, I know the banks look like they're failing. I know the economy is going down the drain. It's all right. It's all right. Come over here. Let's just focus on Jesus. I know, I know there's a lot of earthquakes And Jesus said there's going to be rumors of war. And I know, war broke out and a bomb went off in this city and and terrorism and all this. Uh, It's okay. Focus our energy on Christ because it's in his hands. It's all there. Those are the kind of friends that we want because friends we're trusting bring breakthrough. We want friends that are worth trusting that bring breakthrough in our lives. They teach us how to see the gap between what is real and what is perceptive. Because I think of like in 2 Kings with Elijah and his servant. This is a great story. I love this story because one, one morning I can just see the, the servant of Elijah, wake, Elisha wakes up and he, you know, probably, you know, gets all of his eye boogies out and, you know, he like yawns and, you know, maybe switches, maybe still has his PJs on or something. And, you know, and he walks out of the house and all of a sudden it's like, oh boy. And he looks around and physically it says in the word that there's horses and chariots and a mass army surrounding them. And you can just imagine, it's just these two guys in a house. And there's this whole army that is against them. And so I can just imagine, like, the servant runs back in, just petrified, probably can't even barely speak, trying to form his words. And he just tells Elisha, he says, you know, hey, there is this army out there that is so huge. It's over. It's done. You know, don't even bother to eat breakfast. It's going to be so fast, they're going to annihilate us. And Elijah, I just imagine this, like probably, I don't know if he was in bed. I don't know if he was standing, what he was doing. I just imagine him calm, cool, and collective. He just kind of turns around, gives you the look. Then he whispers and says, Lord, open his eyes. See past the current perspective and see the reality. It's basically what he was saying. And then he tells his servant and says, those who are for us are more than those who are against us. 
Elijah bridged the gap between the perspective versus the reality of heaven. And so his servant runs back out, and all of a sudden, the scene changed. Instead of just seeing all these horses and chariots of this army that was so gigantic and ready to overtake them, all of a sudden, the servant sees beyond the perspective of what's right there and sees into the reality of heaven. And it says in the word of God that surrounding that physical army, a greater army surrounded that army, and it was filled with flaming horses and chariots and soldiers. See, church, there's coming a point for the body of Christ where we need friends around us that are worth trusting that say, don't look at your current circumstance. Don't see your current perspective because that's not reality. We think that this is reality. Everything around us, we put our feet on and we can touch physically. All of this is reality, but you know what? The Jesus that we serve tells us that's not reality. Reality that we serve is beyond this. And we need friends that we can trust in those moments of persecution or tribulation that we may face before the return of Christ that simply say, "Mm -mm -mm. don't bother wasting your energy or focusing here. Focus on the real reality of Christ. Even in the midst of satanic opposition, we want friends that will pursue us for the better of one another. There's coming a day when Jesus returns. It says in the word that everything's going to break loose. Everything that we once knew as solid, everything that we once knew as comforting, will be out of our control. It'll be out of our grip. For those of us who are control freaks, we're going to have a really bad day. (laughs) But the reality is, is we need men and women in the body us who will chase others for the benefit of the greater good it's that whole thing that Jesus said love your neighbor as yourself and I don't know about you but I got to be really honest I really stink at that a lot of times and the thing is I guess if if we can't start doing it now and living it now then how are we going to live it then we have to have the mindset and the heart that we're going to chase people down for the benefit of their own good. Did you catch that? Not the benefit of our good, but the benefit of their good. Those were the types of friends that Paul was talking about, that in the midst of that opposition, these people are going to hunt you down. Finally, Paul says this, friends worth trusting empower us to gain a joyful hope. The scriptures are plastered with the very words of Christ himself saying that in the end days, Those who oppose Christ will wreak mass chaos on the earth, even on those who are followers of Christ. Those of us who say that we are followers of Jesus, that we have confessed with our mouth and believed in our hearts, that we have asked for forgiveness, that we've repented of our wicked ways, and we say that we totally depend on Christ, that he is the Lord of our lives and the only way to heaven, we're followers of Christ. We have dedicated our allegiance to him, meaning that there's no other room for any other God, no room for any other antichrist in our lives. There comes a day where it will rise up and we will be given choices to say, do you choose to follow Christ still or do you choose to follow the new God that we have put in place? 
Jesus tells us that over and over in the scripture. And I really believe that the Antichrist will work overtime to influence us through our financial state, through immorality, and even through witchcraft in the end days. But look at verse 19 through 20 with me. And we're going to touch on in chapter 3, verse 3. It says this, After all, what gives us hope and joy? And what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy and, you, and keep you from being shaken by the troubles you were going through. But you know that we are destined for such troubles. So as followers of Jesus, Paul reminds us and says, look guys, followers of Jesus, it's automatic. You're ordained. You're ordained. You're already set apart for troubles and dilemmas and persecutions. It's going to come. It's going to happen. That's reality. And here's the thing. If Satan cannot overcome our lowest point, then he can never overtake the rest of us. Now, church, let me be honest with you for a minute here because I'm sure some of you might be a little confused. You're saying, okay, pastor, um, you know, and I'm probably treading a fine line here, but you know, it's reality. We've got to talk about this. We're family. You know, pastor, um, I grew up all my life believing... You know, I'm like pre-trib, bam, you know, like the trumpet blows, I'm gone. No problems. Some of you may say, well, I'm not, you know, like before the tribulation, I'm in the middle of the tribulation. Some of you have your charts out, you know, you've got it all destined down to the number and the time. And, you know, and then some of you probably say, well, I'm, I'm like after the tribulation. You know, I'm after all the problems and then we're up. For years, I, I was like, this is crazy. This gets become more muddied water than anything. But let's think about it this way. I used to use the excuse. People would say, are you, are you like pre-trib? Are you like, like, you know, middle-trib? Are you like post-trib? Are you anything-trib? You know, so like they would always ask me this. And so finally I just said, I'm pan-trib. Like, pan-trib? Never heard of that. I said, well, that because, that's because everything's just going to pan out. But then I got to reading the scriptures And I got to praying and I, and I got to begin fasting and praying more And reading the scriptures Let me say it this way If somebody came to you right now and said Hey guys, by the way, on uh, December 31st of 2010, uh, this is totally hypothetical. 2010, Russia's going to invade the country of the United States. We're offering you a program where we can get supplies and the needs and the water and all these things and make sure that your families are taken care of and secure. What would your response be? I'll wait till September. No problem. Oh, I'll wait to see if it happens. You know, it could be hearsay. I think 90% of us would probably start preparing. But, but let's just say, December 31st comes and passes. It's kind of like Y2K, you know? We got all our water, we got our generators, you know, we got our ammunition, you know? I mean, let's face it, we're Hicks people, we're in Pennsylvania. But it passes, and then we're like, 
what did I do? I got all this stuff. Guess I better have a yard sale. Well, now, what did you lose? Really, what did you lose? You were prepared. You were prepared. Here's the thing, church. We need to stop living just up to the moment. We need to stop having this mindset and preparing ourselves for the least. We need to cut the lazy attitude of hopefully just slipping in past the line in our mental thinking and in our heart. We need to start living as though we might be here through everything. Now, I know that really scares you. But at least we're prepared. At least we have answers for those that are around us who are experiencing chaos when we're experiencing peace. Would you just rather prepare for when the trumpet blows and we're taken up before anything's unleashed? Yeah, we're safe. Thank the Lord. But what if the trumpet doesn't blow? And just what if we're still here and the Antichrist is here and we have a different world order here? Laws start to change. Different armies start to rise up. And we were counting on the first trumpet to blow and it hasn't blown yet. Now we don't know what to do and we got other people around us who are coming to us because we claim to have it. We claim to have the answer and and we're like just as chaotic and crazy as they are and we don't have peace when we should have peace. But what if we started to live as though everything's established. The Antichrist is here. Our neighbors are being persecuted. What if we start to live and think that there may be a day where Erie First Assembly won't meet here, but we'll be scattered in somebody's basement by candlelight. And we won't have the latest amps and the cool pianos and the guitars. And we just won't have different things, but we'll be by candlelight and we'll be singing a cappella. What if we live as though the day that we start to memorize Scripture so it's in our heart and in our minds because all of our Bibles have been stripped out of our possession and we just can't get them like normal because if you're caught with it, you can be killed. I want my heart and my mind to be in such a place of attitude with God that way that if I'm not reading this right, and I've been teaching everybody to say, don't worry, it's just a trumpet blast, we're cool, we'll be sitting in lazy boys, and everybody else will be down here running chaotic. I don't want to be in that position. But you say, but that's really intense. I mean, pastor, that's pretty crazy stuff you're talking about. Yeah, you know what? At least we're prepared. At least our minds and our hearts are there and we are prepared to be the army of God that he has called us to be. And you know what? If the trumpet blows and we go up before all that happens, you can talk to me about it in heaven. <laughs> I don't think you're going to care by then, but you can talk to me about it in heaven. But what if? There's a lot that Jesus talks about. 
that points otherwise than what we've been taught and what we've been told and all these things. You can argue and say I'm preaching post-trib and pan and trib and mid and everything, but let's get past that. That's, that's kindergarten. We're adults. We're family. And family cares about each other. But what if we start to live with a great expectation and a joyful hope that things could be different? Because if Satan can't touch the lowest point within us, he can't touch the rest of us. Friends worth trusting understand the power of joyful hope. And there will come a day that we will need that joyful hope. A few months ago when I had preached, I introduced you to a guy named Ed. In a few minutes, we're just going to show you a quick video. And Ed references Christmas. I don't want you to focus on the Christmas factor. I want you to focus on what Ed says because it's very genius. Ed here. And this Christmas... It's all about hope. And I got a woman. Linda and I met while shopping. There she was, behind the counter. She hit me in the eye. Linda was that Tester Cologne woman lady. What I think of hope, I think of going all out. But you know that with proper preparation, diligence, ingenuity, creates hope. You really got to work it. The key is a solid ironing technique. You are in control. If your clothes aren't tightly pressed, it doesn't matter what you look like. Confidence is key. No doubt, I'm kind of like a Tootsie Pop. Got a nice something inside that people want to get to. No one really knows how to get to it either. So when Ed thinks about hope, he thinks about going all out. I like what he said because he says proper preparation, diligence, ingenuity hope is created. Basically, we're in control. We're in control of our joy. You know, Paul could have taught the Thessalonian believers to stew in their juices of self-pity under the midst of their persecution. He could have written them letters and been like, I know, I know those rotten Romans, those evil, evil pagan rulers. Shame on them. I'm fighting for you, brother. He could have done that. But instead, he chose to introduce them to joyful hope. In the words that he would pen to them, 
it was powerful reminder to them saying, you know what, I know what you're going through, but hope is your key. I think Ed was right when he linked proper preparation, diligence, and ingenuity with hope. Because having the wrong kind of friends, they can push us to place our view on our current circumstances. And that's not where Jesus wants us to be. In fact, our circumstances are never the issue. I want you to catch this. Our circumstances are never the issue. Our perception, if not focused on Jesus, becomes the issue. Let me repeat that one more time. Our circumstances are not never the issue, but our perception, if not focused on Jesus, becomes the issue. We are in control of our joyful hope. So let me remind you, if we are a body of believers that are prepared till the end of everything, then we're in, when we are in the thick of it unexpectedly, it is not our perception of the circumstances that we are facing that is the problem, but it is our perception of Christ in that moment that we want to make sure is good. Friends we're trusting will teach us and help us to renew our minds like Paul did with Thessalonica. And when we learn to think and process our circumstances through Jesus, hope breaks forth and transformation begins to happen. It's that inner geo. And the wrong friends will tell us that we have to accept our troubles, that we have to accept our dilemmas and our persecutions. But friends worth trusting will encourage us to never accept truth from our external circumstances, but only to accept truth from Christ. And that's through Daddy's perception. I'm going to ask that you stand. In a moment, I'm going to pray for you. But I want to remind you of this factor. And ask yourself this question. The friends you have, the friends that you consider worth trusting, are they the type of friends who look and say and push you towards Jesus? Hi, baby. Yeah. (laughs) I know. You have to understand, my daughter cannot be controlled after a point. (laughs) Yes. Let me end with this real fast. The friends worth trusting, will they push you towards the eternity of Christ and the reality of Christ, or will they push you further away from him? Let me pray for you. Father, this morning we thank you so much for the reality of your gospel. Lord, we ask now that you would set this word deep in our hearts and in our minds. Father, I pray that we would establish friends that are worth trusting, that allow us to live that Jesus portion of our lives and move us to pursue that. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would gear up our hearts and our minds and our attitudes in preparation for the return of Christ. Make it a reality to us, Lord. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Have a good day.